Good afternoon and welcome. I'm not going to, de- to uh, introduce our distinguished guest speaker, Professor Ella Shoha, because she was already introduced yesterday uh, by Professor Yaakov Yadgar when she gave her talk on Judeo-Arabic. And we had another session in the afternoon, which was a panel discussion of her book on the Arab Jew, Palestine, and other displacements. Um, Today's session is a workshop on memory, memoirs, and history. And the two participants in this workshop are Ella and myself. We have two hours, 2.30 until 4.30. Ella is going to go first, give her presentation. Then we'll have a brief coffee break. And in the second part, I will give my um, comments and we'll have another discussion. Ella. Thank you, Avi. Thank you very much. Uh, In my work throughout the years on the question of the Arab Jew, I have developed the concept called taboo memories, which I found useful to illustrate what is is at stake in addressing the notion of the Arab Jew. First, in terms of its historical existence, in other words, as an empirical category of Jews who spoke Arabic throughout millennia in the Arab-Muslim world. But secondly, also as a trope, a trope full of potentialities for imagining, uh, uh, for looking at the past in order to imagine a different and alternative kind of future. So both in the introduction to the new book, I actually emphasize both elements in the notion of the Arab Jew. I've also introduced the notion of the hyphen between the Arab and the Jew. In other words, whereas in previous works, there has been, even in critical work, the notion or the category of the Jew and the category of the Arab were seen as mutually exclusive and uh, almost, and, and therefore to introduce the notion of the Arab Jew not simply as a historical valid category, but rather as a critical category that uh, emphasized the idea that they are, this is a hyphenated identity and the Arab Jew and the Arab and the Jew are not separated but rather implicated and co-implicated in one another. In other words, the Jew could be an Arab and the Arab could be a Jew. In doing so, one, uh, I, I have tried to transcend the, not only the historical political boundaries, which are obvious to all of us, but also the conceptual philosophical uh, separation wall, as it were, between the two ideas that uh, would seem, you know, you would still read in the me- in, in newspaper the, the, the idea that uh, Jews and Arabs have uh, been for millennia perennial enemies of each other, right? Yudin has done work here on the, <laughs> on the history of the Arabs, so of course, you know, we know that even going back to the Ar- Arabian Peninsula, that some of the Jews, some of the Arabian uh, Arabians, quote-unquote, were actually Jews, right? Uh, it's even mentioned in the Quran. So it, we don't have even to have a fanciful imaginary, right, to, to speak about it as an empirical category. However, not, uh, the Arab Jew became a subject of, the, of recent years to much engagement, including um, 10 years ago there was an article in the forward that addressed my work and called Rejecting the Arab Jew. 
Okay. I, which is a little bit better than the response I received at the time from kill the Arab Jew. Uh, there is some kind of, you know, progress that we're making. So I'm, I'm grateful for uh, positive responses in a sense. So the, the, the academic terrain has been uh, changing and the, the landscape, the intellectual landscape and how we receive this work is, I think, showing that this work is beneficial to how we think, not only about the conflict, but also about cultures. And this is really the topic of my work here. I'm not, I mean, I think it's wonderful that Avi and I are going to engage in a dialogue precisely because our disciplines and academic uh, background are so different. He is in international relations and in history, and my, uh, mine is in cultural studies, uh, and I have been dealing with history, but as a cultural studies scholar and post-colonial studies scholar. What I've been interested is, and I'm coming back to the notion of taboo memories, is the idea that, you know, often when uh, Mizrahim or Arab Jews in exile and in, after their exodus speak uh, uh, positively about the Arab world and their memories, they have been often accused as dealing with uh, nostalgia that has nothing to do with the harsh realities of uh, permanent persecution. So if one, I called it uh, the pogromization of Jewish history, tracing the dot from pogrom to pogrom, this is in the early work of Zionism from the standpoint of its Jewish victims, that within that kind of Jewish history with uppercase narrative, there is no place to narrate alternative perspectives of what I prefer to call Jewish histories. I critique the notion in this, in this early work of the uppercase of Jewish history because, to my mind, there is no one Jewish history. There are uh, Jewish histories depending of their, on their geographical context. And specifically when we speak about the history of Jews within the Arab Muslim world, to my mind, I have argued that that history has been subjected to a Eurocentric epistemology that reductively su subjugated, as it were, the experiences of Jews in Muslim countries to that of European Jews. And this has been uh, an ongoing leitmotiv in my work. So what, is, what does it mean to remember? Memory becomes here an important uh, element in offering, one, an alternative narrative to the meta-narrative of uh, the pogromization of Jewish history. Because... If I would look at various cultural practices, and hopefully we'll have time, I want to illustrate through music, through literature, through cinema, that in fact the memories that even today are articulated by even third generation of not only Arab Jews or Mizrahim, but also by those third generation, say, of Iraqis or or uh, Moroccans who, who tell us what their parents or grandparents have narrated to them. So there is a place here of oral history that become extremely crucial that also offers an alternative to the way that we may approach history only single-handedly through the archive. So the archive is important. I think uh, uh, the work of Avi Schleim proves that, absolutely. At the same time, I think there is room to speak about cultural practices because they may become in itself a new kind of archive. So my argument as a cultural studies scholar has been that 
the archive has to be expanded. What we conceive as an archive cannot be limited to what happens to appear in a state archive and to what this or that historian may be able to retrieve and access. Because that would give us an important access, and again I refer, defer to Avi on this question and what his research has enabled us to see, say for example about 48. But I would also suggest, so for us to have a complex narration of that history, memory, the tool uh, and memory about dislocation, displacement, migrations, which is certainly part of the post-colonial world that we live in, and that would be population demographic idea of diaspora with lowercase d. But I also argued, and the last chapter of this book also deals with it, for diasporic readings or diasporic voices, meaning that to, to articulate any kind of, uh, to understand, we have to uh, see it always in fluidity that it is never fixed, and it's a kind of, of course, an anti-essentialist standpoint about culture of any community that is always already syncretic because it is in dialogue with other cultures, and there are no pure dialogues, and therefore diasporic readings is always to look, the, to look into the, the dislocation that happens within the culture because it is always already something that is not pure. Okay, I hope this point is clear. And now let's move to the fun part, which is I want to give an example of this notion of the taboo in relatively a recent uh, documentary, which was broadcast, uh, which is by uh, Igneo Gilmore from 2005, which dealt with, at that point it was uh, after the Iraq war, uh, the 2003 Iraq war, not after, there is, we're still living that war, but it was an attempt and the Israel actually uh, had an operation of bringing the few remainders of Iraqi Jews to bring them to Israel. So this is a story of one such case, and, uh, and this is, the film begins with showing him in Baghdad, in his house in Baghdad, but then it shows him in Israel. And I want to select one moment in the film which really emphasizes the problem of speaking Arabic and remembering the Arab world when he sits next to his sister whom he hasn't seen for about 50 years, remember, since the, the Jews, the majority of the Jews left in 5051. And then the second wave we have here, Edwin Shuker, you know, those who left in the 70s, very few remained. So for him, he was not actually uh, uh, to be brought to Israel. To meet Iraqi Israelis now was also another form of shock, which is how much those Iraqis have become Israelis, and in one way, not, not, I don't mean simply culturally, I mean in internalizing the taboo that Arabic and Arabness are forbidden to be Express. So let's watch this moment when you see it's uh, his sister and her husband. <laughs> It's not exceptional for Israeli Jews to make friends with some of the Arabs who work for them. But Ezra's close relationship with Zahariya, his cleaner, is unusual. She addresses him in the traditional Arab way as Abu Saleh. Nice. 
I agreed to take Ezra to the family wedding in Zaharia's village. After all, none of his family were going to. That is the incredible paradox. This is really what we're talking about. Even people who know Arabic would be afraid to admit that they know Arabic. Mm -hmm. In, imagine the level of injury and the kind of self-injury that one is inflict upon itself, himself or herself when one is denied that even that you know another language because Arabic, you know, this was the argument in early work and now this is a very common argument. The whole notion that since it's not like any other language because Arabic was has been the language of the enemy. So it is not simply about oh, any process of immigration where the immigrants, say in the context of the US, would be ashamed of their home language, which is common among immigrant children. But this was an additional pressure because Arabic was a taboo language, a taboo culture. So to the point that uh, his sister is, she's not even saying the words. If you notice, she sighs very heavily. She pushes, pulls on his lapel. It's like delicately, uh, what are you doing? It's almost like saying, are you out of your mind to say, to speak Arabic and on top of it say we are Arabs? Mm -hmm. He's like saying it in a kind of, uh, he has not yet consciousness. He has not been gone through the machinery of Euro-Israelization to understand that he's supposed to reject it that is supposed to repress it. So what I think this encounter between the old Iraqis who immigrated in the 50s, who have already been Israelized, and the Iraqi who came just recently, illuminate what has happened in this process to most of the Iraqis if they have, they have if they didn't, if they didn't develop any kind of, if they didn't develop any kind of alternative consciousness. Yeah, go uh, go ahead. Have, uh, I think that this film clip really is illustrated very powerfully the point that you are making about the suppression and repression of all memories, culture, folklore of Iraqi Jews, and that was also my experience. And I'll be talking about my memoir uh, later. But my elder sister doesn't speak Arabic. And like the woman, she says, I don't know Arabic, I don't understand. But she does. And I remember when, when I was a boy how embarrassed I was mm -hmm. to speak Arabic in a public space. And my memoir starts with a scene when I was seven or eight years old in Ramad Gan. I'm playing with my friends in the street. And my father, who was a lot older than me, was 50 years older than me, uh, comes to me and he speaks to me in Arabic in front of my friends. And I'm acutely embarrassed. Mm. And I go red in the face and I reply in monosyllables. And what I wanted to say to him, but couldn't bring myself to say to him, is that it's okay to speak Arabic at home, but in front of my friends, I'd rather you spoke to me in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. But he did learn Hebrew, but not well, and he wasn't comfortable in it. There was no reason why he shouldn't speak to me in Arabic, because that's what we spoke at home. So I think this really spoke to me. Yeah, and in fact, that was, in fact, the majority, the experience of most Arabic-speaking Jews in Israel. I mean, it wasn't at all unusual. 
I think in general, of course, as we know, Zionism as an ethno-nationalist project, which uh, was, I, I tried to suggest yesterday in my work, an anomalous project in one way. It was, as often our critics have raised, uh, similar in terms of uh, to colonial practices and more than that, in terms of its colonial ideas about the inferior East versus the West. But what was unusual in this context is was the notion of return, which was not common to the discourses in various other colonial discourses. But it was a kind of a strange idea of return. On the one hand, we're returning to the East, but the, the project itself was all about emulating the notion of what the West should be. And on the one hand, Jews are Eastern people, which they of course, continuing a long idea, especially as emerges in the post-Enlightenment discussion. Uh, it's not about simply a Jewish tradition, religious tradition of, of the eastern, uh, of the land of Israel. They were using religious discourse for a new kind of uh, ethno-nationalist ide- uh, ideology. In this context, I don't think German and Iraqi have hold the same paradigm despite the history of Nazi persecution. What is interesting, if you look, for example, at the history of Israeli cinema, the heroic nationalist genre actually had scenes in which Arabs are also Nazis. So two enemies got coupled together in in this uh, ideology. So the Arabs became always the Nazi, which is what has happened now with the pogromization of the idea of the Farhud. It's a very specific narrative. In some of the essays, I speak about the complex and situational understanding of what happened in the Farhud and the fact that actually even after the Farhud, I argue, Jews continue to feel, yes, there were some fears, etc., but they continue to believe in Iraq as their home. Now, why is this important? We cannot say that just because there is a shame or because there is a culture of the enemy that it is all the same. Because despite the fact that German was the language of Nazis, German was also the language of European ideals, high achievements. German was even considered at one point to be the national language pre-World War II, of course, by the Zionists. Let's let us not forget that the state of the Jews, Herzl, a Viennese Jew, wrote it in German. Uh, We have to look at what, despite the genocidal practices of Germany, Germany remained to be the height of European, expressing or symbolizing the height of European civilization, which within the Orientalist discourse of Zionists, the Arab world could have never been, become, and Arab Jews, therefore, as the remainders or the, uh, have to be cleansed of the traces of any kind of Arabness, hence the process of the Arabization that I described both on a grand historical scale but also in terms of my own biography. And that comes to this, this is, this is the result of the Arabization, this little encounter. And as Yaakov was saying before, she says it with a heavy Iraqi accent, I do not speak Arabic. Now she cannot not speak Arabic completely with that heavy Iraqi accent in Hebrew. So it is obviously a moment of <coughs> denial and disavowal. So when Avi speaks about the 50s and when, when I speak about the 60s, it is a, a completely li- different landscape because many Mizrahi activists and intellectuals have worked very hard to change that landscape in which maybe that transformation took place. But I'll add another point, as I was saying before, 
Iraqi culture or other Arab cultures, Moroccan cultures, continued to be celebrated within communal spaces. But they, when we say public, depends which public we mean. It couldn't be in schools, it couldn't be in official spaces, but in one's neighborhood, of course. Uh, in one communal spaces, say, of weddings, of gather, get together, of course, the Iraqi, Iraqi culture or Moroccan culture continue to be celebrated. And people may walk with pyjama or galabia or whatever, or play uh, maqam music, etc. So I think it depends, one, on the historical moment, but also in which spaces we're talking. We have to be very careful about, because we can come back, you know, we, Yaakov and Avi and I had a discussion about the present, uh, just this, uh, during lunch. So we can speak about the present. So we have to be alert to the historical moment that we're describing in, within this trajectory and be, be clear about uh, the, the spaces. So now, the other element in terms of my uh, argument was that the fluidity of dialects between Jews and Muslims. Within most writings about Judeo-Arabic, there is this sense that Jews and Muslims could never really talk to each other. And in fact, the Baghdadi case is used as paradigmatic case of the lack of mutual intelligibility of dialects. And the Baghdadi Jewish dialect is seen as unique, and therefore, that's why I was emphasizing yesterday in my lecture the Mosul, the north of Iraq connection that in, in, within generally in Iraq, especially now after the so-called disappearance of the Jews, this would be referred to as a Moslawi dialect from the city of Mosul because it, or the region of Mosul because it reflects the, uh, what is called in, by the linguist the Gilet dialect versus the Qaltu dialect. Now, my argument, I took precisely the hardest case, which is Iraq, uh, Baghdad, as a site of that discussion, and that's why I ended the talk yesterday with uh, the memoir, with the beginning of the memoir of Naim Qatan, Adieu Babylon, because in that memoir, he stages the, not only the fact that it is our, it indirectly, one, I used it to, to argue that there, here is a case where presumably lack of mutual intelligibility, but Muslim and Jews could like any code switching, like any place where you have, and it's not different than any other struggle that Arabs would have in terms of the talking to each other and attempting to code switch and, and showing flexibility. So why is this rigidity in the analysis to suggest that somehow Jews and Muslims were so far from one another that they could not possibly communicate with another? And when Yuval yesterday in his response was taking, was taking the example of preserving the Iraqi language as the idea of the Iraqi language as presumably completely meaning the Jewish Iraqi language that has nothing presumably to do with Arabic is a highly problematic idea. That's what the scholarly and popular culture seem to merge on this idea. And this is why I found myself writing this work on, on Judeo-Arabic. So now I want to show you that one, I showed the whole memoir and how Muslim end up making, uh, attempting to speak the Jewish dialect of Baghdad, this is in the 40s, and planning the future of Iraq in pure, what he says, pure Iraqi, in pure Jewish Iraqi dialect by Muslims and Christians, and all like making a nice gesture of friendship and solidarity. Now, let's take other examples from the realm of popular culture and music, the maqam, which, and the pasta, which is the popular music of Iraq, where you 
found over the years not only Iraqi Jewish musicians, but collaboration among Muslim, Jewish, uh, I'm especially emphasizing the Jewish Muslim, but of course there were Christians, etc., working together. I want to show you a song written, uh, sung by Rashid al-Kundarchi, where he takes actually a song that was uh, a, a traditional Iraqi Jewish song sung in weddings. It's called Afaki Afaki, and it is kind of bravo to you, bravo to you, which is the mother of the groom sings to the mother of the bride. And normally in this kind of traditional courting, it is the mother of the bride who would court the would-be groom, showing him, and it's a whole, the, the mother of the groom laments the fact that she's about to lose her son. And he, you know, it's a very phallocentric song, of course, because the notion of losing the boy is more important, of course, than losing the daughter. And it is the mother uh, of the groom who says, uh, now I lost my son. Bravo to you, bravo to you. Uh, look, and then she describes all the way in which the mother of the groom seduced her son, the son, by seduced meaning you cooked him good food, you showed him this, you, uh, uh, and she goes into the detail. Now, the only reason I'm mentioning it, though, this is a traditional Jewish, sung in the Jewish Iraqi dialect, but also Muslims sang it. And it continues to be part of the general Iraqi traditional music. And here I want to show you, this is a recording from the to Rashid al-Kundarchi. Afaki, Afaki, al-Alfandil Amaltenu. Anat Abtu wa Nashqaytu. Okay, so what's interesting is that Rashid al-Kundarchi sings it completely in the Jewish dialect. Afaki, Afaki, Okay, normally you, uh, a Muslim Iraqi, would, uh, from the meaning from Baghdad and the South, wouldn't say shqaytu. Now what's interesting that there is another singer who sings that, and that's Yusuf Omar. And, uh, this is a recording from later. The, uh, he was known in the 40s, uh, in the 50s, 60s. Now, listen to how he pronounces the words. What did you hear, for those of you who know Arabic? How did he pronounce, uh, I labored hard? So it's interesting. You can see, what I'm talking about is the fluidity, the sliding. He doesn't mean it's hard for him to say shqaytu, so even though he sings it generally in the Jewish dialect, he suddenly slides into the Muslim dialect, what is called the Muslim dialect, in the context of Baghdad, shqaytu. Okay? So what I'm trying to suggest here in contradistinction to the, the, the idea that Jews and Muslims could not un mutually understand each other, that their dialects are not mutually intelligible, counter the, this uh, imagining of Baghdad as separate space of Iraq between Jews and Muslims, we see here in the realm, say, of music, an incredible collaboration and even an effort to, in, on the part of Muslims, 
to engage in the traditional Jewish music. And more, more than that, the Jewish scene, um, I cannot show you the images, but with Nada Marazali, with Salima Pasha Murad, who was a Jew, who they were actually a couple, a Jew and a Muslim. So Salima Pasha and uh, Murad, who was a Jewish singer, and Nada Marazali, who were also a couple. Uh, the argument here that the Jewish and Muslim Baghdadi idioms, which are often cited as as a case of mutually unintelligible tongues, as we see in those various examples, whether in literature, Naim Katan, or in music, are hardly, it's hardly the case. Such, the discourses that I'm critiquing is a discourse that projects, tends to ignore the proximity of Baghdadi's Christian pronunciation to the Jewish, to the virtually overwhelming congruency in northern Muslims' vernacular among Jews, Christian, and Muslim-speaking subjects, and three, the flexible communication between Jews and Muslims in the southern cities of Baghdad and Basra. The case of Baghdad's Jewish and Muslim idiom, idioms can hardly serve as proof for Judeo-Arabic as distinct language. The recycled argument on the lack of mutual intelligibility between Muslims and Jews, the presumed unbridgeable gap between the two idioms I have tried to demonstrate is quite questionable. Uh, even in Hebrew novels, one about Iraq, it's fascinating. One can read, uh, and I've been doing some work on the various novels and stories w- written by Iraqis on uh, in Hebrew about Iraq and how the traces of Arabic are or remain or can be noticed uh, in uh, in those novels. So, for example. If we read, uh, whether in the Zionist novel of Eli Amir, Mafria Hayonim, or the Dove Flyer from 1992, or in the work of Sami Mikhail, for uh, the communist Sami Mikhail, Shavim Vashavim Yoter, or, or some are more equal than others, the, when they speak about the Muslim characters, sometimes they write Hebrew, but uh, as, as you can say in the traditional Judeo-Arabic, they write it in uh, Hebrew letters, but they write Arabic sentences in mm-hmm. Hebrew letters. That was true of the early, what is called the Ma'abara literature of uh, Ezra Haddad, who was actually my relative. And uh, Ezra Haddad, who was a translator and uh, he had a school, Wataniya al-Wataniya in Baghdad, and later also wrote short stories about the experiences of Iraqi Jews he writes, in a sense, in the what is called the Judeo-Arabic tradition, he, which express various Arabic dialects. This is even before we can get to the case of Samir Nakash, which I will touch on in a moment. And in, uh, say, in those stories, say, of Sami Mikhail or Eli Amir, what you see, what you hear is actually the Muslim dialect and the Jewish dialect. So they have Muslim character speaks to a Jewish character Throughout, through the Hebrew language, but they stage an Arabic conversation. However, w- the way I'm reading it is, it is not about the, in, the impossibility of a conversation between a Muslim and, and a Jew, but it is about code switching. The fact that a Jew would have to, and, and that would depend, of course, on the education, the proximity, say, of neighbors, some Muslims who were lived in Jewish neighborhoods, tended, of course, to be fluent more in Jewish dialects, but it shows the coming back to the notion of code-switching among Arabic, the various speakers of the dialects of Arabic, which is not unusual in Baghdad 
it is only the common case. So therefore, rather than as a case of anomaly or a case of uniqueness, it is actually a case that is on a continuum with every Arab regional ethnic neighborhood case of trying to find a mutual, intelligible way of speaking. In, in uh, the whole uh, question of how we think about the memory, in this case was the case uh, I talked about language, is the fact that we have different ways in which cultural linguistic practices are re-narrated in the context of Israel and according to the Zionist notion of Jewish history in uppercase that prevents an understanding of Jewishness as Arabness, as part of Arabness, and that Jewishness took many forms, and that the cultural practices or, or the definition of being a Jew in the Arab world was hardly in isolation, but completely in dialogue and in relation to the contextual environment, and therefore has to be under understood within the prism of cultural syncretism. So thank you. Mm -hmm.